Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a conversation from last month's New York Film Festival, featuring Richard Linklater in an in-depth discussion about his influences. Linklater's new film, Last Flag Flying, starring Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne, had its world premiere in the festival, and it is now playing in theaters. For a special festival event entitled On Cinema, the director joined NYFF director Kent Jones to talk about the influence of other filmmakers on his work, such as David Lynch and Robert Bresson. Let's go now to their conversation. How are you guys doing? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. How are you guys doing? So, all right. I didn't get to say con man. What's that? I didn't get to say con man. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah that was me. Rick wanted me to, st- when I introduced him the other night for opening night, he said... Ken had a, a, a lively digression about our president. Yeah, but, the, but then after that, I, I, when I introduced... Uh, yeah, anyway. I said my mistake when I came out to introduce, I said, oh, Ken, you... You forgot con man in charlatan. So, whatever. You had to be there. So uh, um, you were totally into this when I asked you to do this, and I knew that you would be. And you know, I mean, it's like this is a fun thing to do, right? Instead of I love talking about other people's films more than mine. <laughs> so it's always yeah. fun. So, How old were you when you started watching movies? When you started getting well into as a as an art form. Thinking, I think my moment. And we'll maybe show a clip. I think. Probably not till like high school yeah. that I started even thinking films was, was an art form or something. It was just, yeah, we went to, I lived in a town like it was last picture show territory. We had yeah. a, one screen and there'd be a new film open every Friday. Yeah. And often, um, yeah, we'd usually go. That was all there was to do. So you see, you see a lot of movies. I can, you know, throughout the 70s I saw so many. It was um, a good time to start going to the movies. <laughs> yeah, the it 70s. was a great, it was a great right. time. You know, but yeah. the movies that showed in my town, they weren't the great 70s movies like, yeah. you know, Badlands and Mean Streets yeah, never played in Huntsville, Texas. Mother Jugs and Speed. Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah, it was a lot of Mother Jugs Harry and Speed. Harry and Walter go to New York. And Evil Knievel and, right. you know, yeah. the, the fun stuff. Walking yeah. Tall 2, Walking yeah. Tall 3. all that. Yeah. 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 Those, it, was, it was always great. Though. When did but the light bulb think, go on for you? I think you? the light bulb started going off. I think in some strange way I saw Annie Hall my, it was my sophomore year, high school or something. I remember liking that. That was the film of the year for me. I saw it a couple times even, and I like that. I don't even remember seeing Star Wars that year. It was oh, you know where you saw Star Wars? I said, Annie Hall was my film that year. I don't know. <laughs> I saw Star Wars later and liked it, but I, it wasn't my thing. But I think my senior in high school, I remember, I've talked about this before, I was on a double date to a midnight film, um, Eraserhead. A double date? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, for some reason this girl I was going out with, and yeah. a friend of hers in a some guy, we ended up, the four of us, and somewhere along the way, probably about the little clip where I'm about to show you, early in the movie, they were like, okay, we're out of here, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's this? And I was like, I'm staying, you know, what the, you know, so, but it, so you're pretty old, you know, I'm 18 at this point. Did you point. date leave? What's that? Did you date leave? Uh, no, anyway. She might as well have. Okay. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> Soon enough. <laughs> she left. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that That's night. That's a good Yeah, okay. Um, well, you gave it away. We're going to show a clip from Real Racer. But we're yeah, not but I wasn't going to talk about it. Right. I was dating. We we're going to talk about the movie, so. Um, <laughs> I hope. Um, so that, but it was often, uh, you know, college maybe. 
you know, at that point, I, I wanted to be a writer. You know, I went from like want to be novelist to want to be playwright. Yeah. And somewhere in probably my sophomore year of college, I started thinking about film. There was, I was at this small college, and there was an English teacher. He wasn't even my teacher, but he had kind of a film club. VHS, were, you know, <laughs> on Tuesday night, you say, he's showing up Clockwork Orange. His name is Ralph Pease. He just retired. And yeah. I go back there every now and then and show a movie and, yeah. uh, at my old college. But um, just the first film buff I ever met. Yeah. You know, he knew who wrote it, who directed it. And I was yeah. like, oh, wow. We'd sit there and have a discussion. You know, He'd open it to the whole school, and there'd be like 12 people would show up to watch Clockwork Orange or Chinatown or you know whatever. And... Uh, yeah, I just enjoyed talking about it, yeah. stories and characters, and it was just starting to happen for me. So I started, you know, I bought a um, a book on the technical aspects of filmmaking. Because mm. I was like, oh, you know, how, how do you do that? And uh, that was a couple years of just reading and thinking. Just I got in a position soon enough after I, I dropped out of college where I actually could. I moved to Houston, which repertory cinema, I could watch three or four movies a day. Yeah. So I really kicked into overdrive, and. Uh, that's when I really got passionate. And then, you know, bought some equipment a little bit later. A little bit after that, started the Austin Film Society and kept making films. And here I am. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about I other people's it's yeah. But you dedicate your life to it, is what yeah. happened. Yeah. You know, I talked to people who they kind of like films and they kind of want to do this. Are they thinking about that? You know, it's kind of like actors or just any artistic medium. You can't just dabble and be kind of interested. You, yeah. you, they're just, just, you, you have to dedicate your entire life to it and really let everything else go to whatever degree you can responsibly do that. And, you know, and everyone fails a little in that, in that category. But, um, yeah, you got to go all in, you know. Well, it's like there's a, um, there was an interview with Truffaut, like, days before he died, it must have been. But he was talking about making movies, and he said, yeah, making movies is, making a movie is like being in a fugue state. You know, you just, you're, you're, everything else is kind of shut out, and if you're not doing it that way, you probably. Yeah, it has you know. to. Your dedication to it has to be that, yeah. particularly when you're getting started, you know? You have all this passion for it, but you don't really have the, the experience within the medium. So I think you're even more um, you're more all in. And I found more of a balance as I got older and it fit into my life better. I could have a life, you know, outside it to, to whatever degree. Um, but yeah, you, you just have to be fully. It's kind of like, you know, joining the priesthood or something. You gotta, you, the, the, the amount of, <laughs> without those prohibitions. And stuff, you, know. <laughs> you know, so you, uh, yeah. I meet film students, and you know the film society in Austin. We're showing all these movies, and they're like, "Yeah, I haven't been to your the new theater. I haven't seen anything." Like, you want to make films? And they're like, "Yeah, I want to make films." You will and start watching. You're them. not gonna make it. <laughs> I can tell you right now. <laughs> Go do something else. Because <laughs> you don't you don't love movies enough. Yeah, you know? you're just not yeah. gonna. Do yeah, it. movies are fun. Yeah, yeah it's kind of you gotta love your medium. The medium, it's gonna. It's kind of like a career in anything. You have to love it. It doesn't always love you. It, it provides for you, but you can't expect anything from it in return except what you're <laughs> giving. You know, it's like. Yeah, I, I remember the experience of being young and sitting there with the TV on, watching a movie, and my father would, you know, mother would be sitting there, and my father would be like, "Oh God, look at that! I thought he died years ago." You know, we're making some stray remark about the uniforms or something. I thought that was just like, you know, and I. 
you know, it's like Marty Scorsese said once. He said, "Yeah, it's like it's life or death up there." You know, somebody else is experiencing. You know, yeah, it's kind of they're a, not in it all the way. Yeah, it's background noise, or yeah. it's an entertainment, or yeah. yeah. I think the big jump for me was films that were there was kind of a social thing, which I think they are to a large percent of the population. You know, just the idea that you would go to a movie alone. Yeah, you know, it's kind know. of a social. A weird hey, let's thing. go see this movie. Who can I talk? You know, like I said, I was on a double date to Eraser. <laughs> yeah. At some point, you just got to make the 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 decision is like well, no one's going to keep up with me. I'm yeah. going to just right. I'm going to a twelve o'clock show, then I'm going to go to a three o'clock show, then five. You know, no one. So you just you you just get used to buying that ticket alone, getting your seat wherever you know, and it's fun because you tend to meet those other loners, like that guy. I got friends with a guy who always sat over there, and I, about six months later, you finally go, hey man, you know, <laughs> <laughs> who are you? You know, I've seen you at seventy five movies by now. <laughs> Every Godard film, and you start talking about cinema, and yeah. through that, these weirdos, um, we we kind of started a film society. You know, it was like myself and this odd collection of, you know, just like, hey, I want to show some movies. I, I was the energy guy who, like, hey, they keep showing that same old Bergman or Fassbender film over and over. Those guys made a lot of movies. Yeah, <laughs> can we see some more? Let's, let's not I, see the Seventh Seal I, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. let's watch yeah. that again and again and again. It's <laughs> yeah. like. So I knew uh, there was a film critic in Austin named George Morris. He had come back from New York. I think he had been fired from uh, Texas Monthly for giving Urban Cowboy a bad review. And he uh, was an older guy, and he really he knew New York distributors, and he kind of yeah. I was like he told me about that. Yeah, he had worked at I think New Yorker Films for a while, and he knew Dan Talbot, and mm. Dan Talbot gave us. I did this Fassbender series. It was the first director retrospective we did, and he gave us all the films for a hundred dollars when he should have, would have normally asked like a two fifty minimum because that's all we could afford. And uh, it was a success. And I always thank George, but I always had a soft spot for Dan Talbot. Uh, you know, just loved him for that. You know, always proud when my movies were showing at his place. So, um, but yeah, starting the film study was really it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I was probably too shy about what I was doing. I was shooting in Super 8. I was starting to make my first Super 8 feature around then. But it was I could be I could be a total hustler and a pain in the ass and a for the film series we were doing. And it's, I was just working on my own stuff very privately or just with a few friends. Um, it took me a while to get the confidence to get out there on my own behalf, but uh, I had no problem doing that for um, cinema in general, so. When I um, asked you about this, your first instinct was really interesting. You said, you know, let's concentrate on small moments. And the first clip that, yeah. I guess, well, the, the one that we'll start off with has a really small moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was thinking about it, it's like, well, what is film? Um, you know, to me, it's, it's moments. You know, I wanted to show, like, it'd be one thing to show, okay, these are my favorite films and the, my favorite scenes, but I thought, well, I'll show, obviously I'm not gonna show anything from a film I don't love, but um, kind of a moment, and not necessarily the best moment of the movie or the, my favorite, the emotional moment. It's just a moment that, it, that jarred me, not so much as a viewer, but as a future filmmaker. Like, kind of the language of cinema as I was really, really looking at films as a uh, wannabe filmmaker, um, kind of going, oh wow, look at that detail, or wow, you can do that, or what does this mean? So I, I think it's, um, 
how that jostled around in my filmmaking brain, mm -hmm. more so than just um, um, like, wow, this is where I was moved the most. That, that would be a very long list. We could be here forever. I'm sure every one of you could program many hours of that. But, and I, I just like the idea of moments, because to me, that's what cinema is. It's what you remember. You know, if you think back on a film, you never really remember the plot of a movie. You do, kind of, but it, I always thought plot is sort of this agreed upon fiction that we all sign up for to get those moments, to hang those moments on, um, right? You know, our lives don't have plots, really. There's no plot twists, um, occasionally, but... Um, <laughs> But not <laughs> there are yeah. plot twists, but yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> definitely twists. turns in yeah. your life narrative. But um, I think when you think of your life, you're thinking of moments mostly. And as you take in art, you're you're thinking of how you feel about something. It's usually not tied to a. Uh, it's tied to characters and moments. Or something leads you there. So the plot machinations of a film are leading you to those. If it was just all moments, I think I've tried to push that, <laughs> maybe made films that are kind of moments and as plotless as possible. But uh, so yeah, I, I, think, I think film is moments, or that's what we're really striving for. At least that's, that's what I feel I am, certainly. And these are just moments, they're just, they're details or just something I noticed, I guess. So let's start with a clip from Raging Bull. Great sound design, but that's not the one. The fight is here. Now the next time that friendly bartender says, What do you have? Give him that answer the whole world here. Taps, blue ribbon. <laughs> okay. That was the moment. Did you see it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Guess what it was? It was that yeah. little, okay, live TV, 50s, right? Um, just the transparency, perhaps blue ribbon. And it was the, the, the flaw, the hand up in the corner, flipping it down for the live TV thing. I, I was watching that. And Raging Bull changed my life. I mean, make no mistake. But uh, that little detail, just that little transparent hand to knowing it's all so designed that every detail, especially when you create a period film like this, is thought out and is um, there for a reason. And to see a flaw like that, which I think was probably typical or occasional on, on live TV, I just thought it just sent a chill you know, up my spine. I was just like, wow, that was, that's just beautiful. It's just so real. You know, when you're recreating something, and Raging Bull's nothing but real, but to get that kind of detail right. I just started thinking about production design and how a film should look and feel and the texture of it. And, um, so that little moment is always just kind of, you know, I, I've just loved it. But that is a film full of those moments. You could do it from, through characters and just a little line of dialogue here and there. But that was just kind of a, just a detail of production design that if you get that moment right, and I think you have to strive to get that moment right, to get every moment right, you know, and like that. But uh, I think he, he he was mixing in the 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 
scene in the fight, the stampede after the, the first fight, yeah. there's a scene where a soldier's shirt rips. Oh, yeah. And he couldn't get the sound exactly the way that he wanted it. And he said, that's it, I'm taking my name off the picture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or they um, wanted him to quit. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. we were out of money or time. He's yeah. like, oh, no, no. Yeah, so, yeah it, it's that yeah. kind of detail. You have to love that kind of detail. To, to finish your movie, you have to do that beginning to end, sound mix, everything. Yeah. Raging Bull, to me, that's like one of the greatest sound mixes in film yeah. history. The background sounds, just that little bit we saw in the ring. Okay. There's weird, just beautiful noises. And the little it, animal sounds. Yeah, yeah, I think you hear, a, I don't know what animals, bulls maybe? You know, I don't know what they are. I think but, that gentleman's uh, name was Frank Warner. Yeah. The sound he threw out all the sounds after he was done with the movie. Yeah, because sound guys, they build these huge libraries. Yeah. And so you don't want to hear your sound that they made for your movie in some other movie five years later. So yeah, it's, um, but that, yeah, Raging Bull, I remember seeing it for the first time and just, I, I think it took my thinking of a film to a whole nother level. Just like, wow, a film can do that. That wasn't just an entertainment, that was like the, the depth of it, the psychology. Um, I was a young guy kinda, I, I really related to Jake <laughs> in my own crazy way. I see him different, you know, at different times in your own maturity, but um, I kinda that obsessiveness and that, I just was just blown away by what that film could make you feel and think or its depiction. And I had a, a family friend, he was um, Pete Disclefani, and he, he had grown up in the Bronx at that era. He was born in the mid to late 20s, and he just, I remember talking to him like, have you seen this movie? He goes, it was exactly like that. He had grown up in that area of New York. And he's like, it was exactly like that. And I was like, wow, what a compliment <laughs> you could ever get for a, a period film. Like, it was exactly like that. So holy shit, and a and a, uh, a a moment of silence for for Jake. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. Just lost him what, a, a week right. ago, two weeks ago, two weeks ago. Two recent. Weeks ago, I think. They're all leaving us. They, and also Frank Vincent. Yeah, Frank Vincent just passed away. Yeah, yeah, they're all Harry Dean Stanton, all that those guys. And half. And half. <laughs> Half in the film were what? He funded, it was amazing. Cal he funded Caligula, right? He did fun Cal movie, yeah. what, no, 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 that's Bob Guccione, Bob Guccione. Was that Bob no. Guccione? Half actually was a big... Yeah, that was, that was right. No, Half, half distributed... Half paid for a lot of restorations, actually. And he, he just did... Uh, we call him Half. Yeah, Guccione, like sorry. Yeah. That was so wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Half, you see, yeah, he had his name on some international films, I think, of that era. Yeah, he... he well, he was a big... He, he, he liked he, you know, funded quite a bit of quite a few restorations, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he showed films at the mansion. I think he, he had showed films at the mansion. Yeah, <laughs> were you there much? You no. dropping by the mansion to no. watch a movie? And no, never quite made it. That's there. personified by Cliff Robertson in Star Eighty. Yeah, right? <laughs> he's, um, a, he's a pretty good hip. Yeah, um, I guess it makes sense to go to Eraserhead next, right? Sure, I was talking about it earlier. Yeah, and a black and white film from only I guess I saw it a year or so before you right before Raging Bull, but black and white had been out for a long time. Yeah. Both, I mean, Eraserhead was a, it was hard to get a film made in black and white in that era, so um, everyone will say that from the 70s and 80s, so. Uh, yeah, Raging Bull was, that yeah. was a, a little bit of a fight. Yeah, um, even, uh, even he was thinking, wasn't Marty thinking color until. Uh, it was Michael Powell. Who said, yeah, the, the gloves are red. Like, and that's right, you see all those fights. I, I think of that as I think of television from the 60s. To me, it's in black and white because we had a black and white TV. You know, you don't, how you think of the past. Well, 
certain eras are very, very colorful, the 20s, for instance, but we only know it through black and white images, but in reality, very colorful. Yeah. So you have to make your choice, you know. What, what works, that's what a director does. You make a choice, how you want your audience to perceive your story, so. It's a big choice to go black and white, but I don't think David Lynch had any problem <laughs> going black and white. I don't think he ever thought for a second that Eraserhead, this film yeah. he was working on, even though his first two, two shorts I've seen by him, The Alphabet and The Grandmother, are both color, mm -hmm. um, I think probably Eraserhead was always black and white. And The Elephant Man was black and white. Yeah, yeah, okay. his first couple. So let's go to Eraserhead. These clips kind of contain the moment. That yeah, you that's more of to. a sequence than a moment. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's call it the real time. I, what impressed me most the first time I saw that, and I just love it, because he's just taking you so much into Henry's world, you know, Jack Nance's world. And it's just, I remember watching it the first time, just how fucking long it took the elevator door to shut. And that happens in our lives like every day, right? But to put that in a movie, I was thinking, and then. The, the real-time ride up to the floor and the long, it just, it just blew me away. It's like, oh, a film can do that. It can kind of put you in a real-time, for psychological effect. Uh, I just thought that was uh, just an amazing choice to, to, and that's early in the film. You're kind of, films set their own visual palette and their own tone, and I've always been amazed and how forgiving audiences can be and accepting the way we take on art, we, the way we watch it, the way we perceive it. I think if you just set your rules, that an audience will follow you, you know, they want to. Just, um, and you can set a tone and a pace that, as long as something about it is intriguing or compelling, that you might be able to keep an audience with um, even that level of kind of real time, realness, you know. No one will think of Eraserhead as real. <laughs> it's such a dream state, practically. Yeah. But uh, the, pace, the pace of it. Well, in terms of the unfolding of time. And, yeah, yeah, it just really intrigued me. I just loved it. I, I just think David Lynch is one of the great cinema artists. And uh, that little moment, that, you know, that sequence. I mean, that, that movie is so amazing. Um, but, uh, you know. Um, the elevator. Should, yeah. Should, um, should we, and a different kind of sound design. Very, very different. Very, you know, low budget and yeah. super stylized and completely yeah. the director's, probably his sound design. Yeah, and, very yeah. very different. Lynch is also Homemade. a great, yeah, he and Alan Splett, the, the guy he worked with uh, all those years. Yeah. So two for two on the sound design. Raging Bull and Eraser have two of the greatest sound designs. I don't know if we'll... <laughs> but, um, um, should we go from black and white to color? Yeah, maybe we should jump to just, color. Just this to is getting a little, a little dark and expressionistic yeah. <laughs> here. We, let's, let's liven it up a little. A little too black and white. Uh, no, Barry we... Lyndon, maybe? Oh, sure. Yep, let's do that. Barry uh, Lyndon, please. When Kubrick died, I remember listening to the Barry Lyndon score for about a day straight. Nothing like the narrator giving away the ending of the <laughs> That to me is such a bold, bold. I always love uh, voiceover. You know, people, the cinema 101 is like, ah, don't talk about it, show it, you know? Yeah, no narration. narration no narration, no, yeah. no voiceover, no Movies narration. have to move, they shouldn't. Yeah, all yeah. these rules. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, even though I haven't used much voiceover or narration and things I've done, uh, I just love it and seeing Kubrick's reverse beautiful zooms and um, I just uh, well, what point in the movie we're more than halfway but still we're about like three quarters of the way through the movie I and think. it's kind of so beautifully perverse that when Barry for all his trials and uh, you know ways has uh, achieved his that's his peak of happiness you know that he is a good father and he does love his son so much and his life is at that point to be told okay it, this is the peak it's all downhill from here and <laughs> 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 the trappings of such a beautiful gorgeous movie um i i just was i don't know i just, I just find that so uh, brilliantly uh, perverse and it, it, what would be the note the studio note there would be oh god <laughs> I can't even uh, you can't do that <laughs> the studio no note. it's really yeah. radical it's truly radical I, I think yeah I mean it, it's a stately film but it's also a relentless one it's um, brutal yeah and it's so it's in the most undercutting subtle that guy the tone of that guy's the narrator's voice even is so hmm. he just takes you on that that little journey and uh, people, I guess, I, I was too young to see it in, in its day, but sometime in the 80s when I saw Barry Lyndon, its reputation, having loved all the other Kubrick films I'd seen at that point, I just, you know, back then before DVD or anything, you just, I just hadn't seen Barry Lyndon. It hadn't played and, you know, it was just this coffee table film that wasn't Kubrick's best or wasn't a big hit or, you know, whatever it wasn't. And I remember going into it saying, well, it doesn't look, and I remember just like, Wow, I remember mm. seeing it a couple times in a short amount of time, and uh, it was out of circulation I, for a while. Yeah, I think I think yeah. that was it. Yeah, because it was a disaster when it came out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just think that's commercially one of, the, one of his most <laughs> yeah. sublime, yeah. beautiful movies, and I, I I just like voiceover. I think that Age of Innocence has a little bit of that tone, you know, with a narrator. But she was to die thinking the world was a yeah. good place you know a, a good place or you know like Edith Wharton's words were just so like well this um, particular example that you chose though actually reminds me of another movie that's not narrated but where people bring up the same issue which is Vertigo oh yeah and halfway through the movie you know you're yeah. hearing a letter that she's written but that she doesn't send or she basically explains you the know entire, yeah yeah you know before he does yeah yeah you are informed you know that division of knowledge is always a, a fascinating element it, and as a filmmaker, it's really the, I think it's the, the main storytelling element of any movie is who knows what, when, and what do you want the audience to know? And uh, it sounds simple, but it, it's really the backbone to everything. And I think it's a privileged, um, you can really put the audience in a privileged spot or you can kind of screw with them by withholding mm. um, information. So it's a huge choice. Mm. And... Uh, I just did a film, the film I just wrapped a couple weeks ago was that. It's like, I'm showing that I had to make a choice. The characters don't really know what each other are doing in the book that we adapted it from. You know, I just said, had to say, I'm gonna let the audience know everything. And I'm not through voiceover, just through showing them. And I'm not gonna let the characters know what the others know. It was the first film. It's a little more plotty than most things I do. This is Where'd You Go, Bernadette, coming out next year sometime. But uh, yeah, I just made that choice. But I was thinking of, of movies like this that 
just, okay, who knows what, and you can kind of privilege an audience, and it's kind of fun to know more than what you're watching. So Vertigo, I just saw a beautiful 70 millimeter print of that, actually, in uh, Seattle, just yeah. a few weeks ago. Uh, but yeah, that, that moment is like, wow. Hitchcock, and he's the master of leading you exactly where he wants, so. Yeah, that'll set up, I guess that obviously sets up the next clip. Uh, it's, a, it's a good segue into Hitchcock, but. Oh, yeah. Um, I should say that uh, it's interesting, because Barry Lyndon's based on a novel by Thackeray, but he narrates his own story, so that's all Kubrick's invention, the, the narrator, um, the omniscient narrator. And, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't read the uh, Thackeray, I but it's read ten pages of it. Right. Yeah. It. I would like to just to study, knowing the film really it's well. It's a rollicking, it, yeah, you know, kind of like well, it's the luck yeah. of Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, um, so uh, I'm sure Kubrick's is better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, They're always like the film is not as good as the book. I'm sure the. I think that in this case the, the film is better I'm than the book. Minor. Yeah. Um, Anyone want to disagree? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and and by the way, the what we the clip that you just saw is from the um, DVD that Warner, I mean the the Blu-ray that Warner Brothers did, but uh, Criterion's just yeah. I was going to say how beautiful that looked. But Criterion is has just a new version. It looks even better. And it's the right aspect ratio. So yeah, yeah. The projectionists never quite could get that right. No. So uh, yeah, Criterion, we love them. Yeah. Filmstruck. Hooray Criterion. for Criterion. Yep. TCM. Thank you. <laughs> so let's go to the Making clip from. World. Yeah, a young person now has no excuse. <laughs> you guys, have you seen that? Yeah. <laughs> we used to, you know, travel around the world to see films. Just yeah. to, no. <laughs> it's all available. It's great. Let's go to the clip from Psycho. Another very perverse moment of, uh, <laughs> I just think Hitchcock is so brilliant. But this one always impressed me as like, oh my God, the power of cinema and identification. Like, think about who we're just pulling for there to get away with what he's, or you know, he, he, Hitchcock pulls you so successfully into his point of view that this guy just killed the, well, you don't well, know. Well, you don't know him. that the first time you You don't know that. it's him, but yeah. what's he? He's covering up How a many, crime. He's covering up a murder. How many people haven't seen Psycho? You've all seen it. Yeah. But okay, I mean, right, we don't we know go. he's guilty, but he's definitely accomplice. He's part of a, he's committing a felony here. Yeah. And he's covering up a murder for his For someone, mother. for a loved one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But he's a bad guy. Um, but just the power of pulling you in, just the way he cuts it, the way it flows. And that... Anthony Perkins, that little smile, that little relief, it's so subtle, it's so like, oh, I don't know, it's just beautiful. But, um, but it's really interesting because when you wrote me the description of the clip, you said it's the scene where he's eating peanuts and he's waiting for the car to go down in quicksand. And I was like, yeah, right. And then when I put it on, I'm he's like, not. oh, right. He actually is eating peanuts at another moment in the right. movie and it's not quicksand, it's a swamp. But that it's is the swamp. way that you remember, the, you know, yeah. memories of movies. You conflate things. It's a scene later with Martin Balsam that he's sitting there eating. I haven't yeah. seen it in a while, actually. He's uh, eating. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely conflate, put things together. But there's nothing like the exactness of a... <laughs> we showed some... Jim Jarmusch was in Austin once, and he showed a, a piece from a Buster Keaton film. He was showing some short films. Yeah. 
And he saw it and said, I don't think this print is the this right one. I remember them doing, he was so sure yeah. of his memory of a film, uh, this Buster Keaton short. And I said, no, you know, sorry, the proof's <laughs> in the... <laughs> it's like, is it a different print? Is it like, no, it's your brain. The way we all process memories isn't exact. But films are pretty... A film will uh, let you know, <laughs> you know what? Pretty exact, pretty exact record. Although but sometimes in the case of, of silent films, especially Buster Keaton's movies, sometimes uh, yeah. Raymond Rohauer bought that collection and I think he they might go back tinkered. And, yeah, yeah, apparently D.W. Griffith would be in the second reel of a film. And you could do this with silent because they're not a complicated soundtrack, you know, in the, you know, on the film itself. He would be thinking of a scene coming up in the next reel. He would go up to the projection booth and make a cut yeah. and then come back, you know, so... He's editing as the films are being projected. You know, you could do that. So anyway, you end up with a lot of different cuts. But that, you know, silent era. Um, you know, an another example, I think, um, of cinema pulling you into a point of view of someone, and by the time your identification is so thorough, you realize it's kind of too late, is uh, Travis Bickle, Taxi Driver. Yeah. I think that's one, also a bit of a perversity that First, you, you get to know Travis. He's vulnerable, he's alone, he you know, shares a lot of things everybody has felt. And then it's only that last part of the movie where you realize, oh wow, he's, this guy's a, sick he's a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like, he just killed a guy and didn't care, you know, the guy he shoots yeah. and the, you know, it's kind of yeah. you know, racist maybe. And then he, he doesn't, he cares more about the gun than the guy he just killed. He was in the middle of committing a crime, but it's still, you would think that would affect one's life. He had been in the, yeah. the Marines, right? Or he yeah, had been he's in a the, Marine. Yeah, but yeah. still. Uh, and then by the time he's going to assassinate, he's training to assassinate a presidential candidate, uh, but you're still with him, you yeah. know? You're still, you wouldn't turn him in, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. He's my hero. He's the lead in a movie. He's Robert De Niro. He's big on a screen. You know, it's just, it's a powerful medium. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's you know, it pulls I mean, you in strong. And as a filmmaker, it gives you confidence, you know? When, when, the, when the studio note is like, ah, why should we care about this person? Well, because they're on this, they were, they're the lead in the movie. You know, sometimes that's all it takes. You don't have to, you know, make sure their dog died or they got, you know, it yeah. can be simple things. You know, you're putting them out there as the protagonist. That's a powerful thing yeah. from the jump. So... It's your game to lose at that point, I think. So. Yeah, I'm thinking, for instance, of your film, Bernie. That's a very complicated case. And Bernie, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The Jack Black movie. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, in, tra in Taxi Driver, I have to say, having seen it again recently, the first dead giveaway is when he takes Sybil Shepherd to the porno movie on their first date. That's, yeah, yeah, that's not a good move. <laughs> An unfortunate choice. You know, so. <laughs> I've seen other couples go to this. Uh, yeah, no, you know, I didn't know that you felt here. this way. About, yeah, we yeah. could go to something else. Yeah, that's, is that innocent or is he just kind of rubbing yeah, her? There are other movies I could take you to. Yeah. yeah. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd seen Raging Bull was my first Scorsese movie. Yeah. Because, uh, again, Taxi Driver, I didn't see it as a teenager. It didn't show in my town. Mm. So I saw that. Saw him in, revert, in a different order. And... Uh, equally blew me away in a, in a different way yeah. than Raging Bull, but I was hooked. Um, <laughs> we had Schrader with Austin, yeah, it was probably 10 years ago, 
but at, at his screening for the movie he was showing, a guy showed up in a, like a flag jacket with a mohawk. I was like, oh my God, what a thing to be following you around. As, yeah, yeah. As a, you know, like, did, he, did he make a remark? No, he sat there quietly, which is even more scary. That is, yeah. 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 <laughs> I wanted to ask Schrader, hey, did you notice that guy? I was like, weird. Like, who identifies that much that you're going to go play that guy in public? I don't know where that goes. Anyway. Um, well, you mentioned, again, a good segue. You mentioned Jim Jarmusch before showing the, doing the Buster Keaton movie in Austin. So we have a yeah. Buster Keaton clip. Um, and uh, let's go to the clip from the general. <laughs> I just think it's one of the greatest like reaction shots in film history because it's so deadpan. You know, it's such a big effect. Oh, yeah. The biggest early special effect. I mean, that's not a special effect. Keaton really dropped a train right. to a river, it's, it's and apparently so it was there for like the next twenty-five years or something. Yeah, I've, have you ever read that? Like they didn't know what to do with the, this big train, and they just kind of there it was left. So. Uh, <laughs> Keaton was so, that's just so gutsy. What if it wouldn't, I mean, I guess they had, you know, set up the, the fire and, the, you know, done the bridge to collapse, but. Peckinpah did. What if it did wouldn't it? have, yeah, yeah. I, just, I like it. Like, what if the, I wonder how many cameras they had going. What if it would have jammed? What if it, you know, yeah. it's just such a big moment. And then to be, um, narratively speaking within the movie to have the confident general just to turn to him and he just looks he doesn't grimace he just <laughs> it reminds me of those russian um what are the those, like kuleshov the kuleshov experiment yeah. you know when they they cut to a close-up i think when people were really inventing and thinking about cinema the russians were good at that weren't they um they did all right they cut away to something horrific and then cut back and the audience fell. Oh, they gave an expression that they didn't really give. It's the same close-up as the one before, but you're projecting on it whatever you saw in the other shot that's not really in, you know, just, it just reminds you how much you're participating. But as a filmmaker, I thought, oh, you don't have to, the characters don't have to react the way you would even in real life necessarily. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the more neutral you make them, the more you're in a subtle, unconscious way demanding the audience participate in your movie a little bit um, if it's not annoying but if you have characters laughing a lot when something's funny that's annoying you know like I'd rather I want to be the one laughing in the theater I don't want them laughing uh, I'll let you know if it's funny you know like yeah, that that right. kind of attitude so it's sometimes fun to have in a black comedy certainly like and I, I, I've directed enough comedies where I'm, I'm always telling the actors, like, well, you know, none of you think this is funny. You know, like, don't right. play the laugh. I yeah. mean, it's funny. You have to have confidence in your comedy. And it's funny. But sometimes the more neutral they can be and play it, the more deadpan. Uh, it, it's all happening in your brain, really, I, I think, your reaction. So... Uh, it, well, it just depends on the tone you're going for, obviously. I mean, that, the scene in Last Flag Flying where Steve Carell is identifying yeah, he his looks, son's body, I'm thinking of now, because I, that's just not a scene that's shot or played for as a tear-jerking moment, and probably it would have been by... Uh, it certainly could have. A lot of other people. And it's funny that uh, the contrast there is like, What's going on with the guys in the at the coffee mess? Right, is actually funny. 
they're yeah. saying really funny things right. to each other. All right, they're not laughing, but I think they're funny. And then, um, yeah, the, the most horrific thing is happening across the room that you could imagine. Yeah. So that's, that's how life often unfolds. But uh, yeah, and I never crossed my mind to show the specific of what he's looking at. No way. You know, some things you can't really represent. I think cinema shouldn't try. Yep. Um, that makes an interesting segue to Pickpocket, I think. Um, so let's do that clip from Pickpocket. That's a movie that launched a lot of other movies, boy, and a lot of f other filmmakers, huh? That, yeah, mm. yeah, you see that kind of precision. I mean, no one has the, the precision of Brisson. I don't know what it is. We can talk about Hitchcock all day as far as leading you, but Brisson in a, in a very different way, mm. kind of this elliptical um, storytelling method that he has, and I, I just love, he's not afraid to cut people's head. It, no, so it's not about the faces so much here. It's really all about that guy, but I just love the sequence so much. It's a real high point of that movie that, you know, he's, he's gotten better at his pickpocketing, you know, his own crime, and he hooks up with these other two guys, and it's kind of a wordless relationship, these kind of honor among these thieves. They get together, and they have this, uh, you know, this, this sequence is just so, I find it just breathtaking and not a word, you know, yeah. it's just a wordless and it it's, goes on for a while. It's just, uh, it's beautiful. But I love, you know, I think Brisson is one of those, just that handful, that special handful of directors who really just had their own language. You know, they just created their own cinematic language and answered to it their whole career. And uh, that's one of his leanest movies. It's only about, how 70, long? 75 minutes? Yeah, it's not even Maybe 80 not even. minutes, but you yeah. get a full story. It's an adaptation of Crime and Punishment, you know, so, and all great, uh, great uh, voiceover, too, you know. But you were talking before about acting in films, and, you know, yeah. uh, in, in Bresson's films, he didn't, he no acting. There is no acting. No acting, no actors. And again, I think it's that he, you identify with his character so strongly, but he gives you kind of a blank canvas to project your own feeling and emotions on. He had a way of um, his casting, and he called them models. He didn't call them actors. And um, he wasn't really interested in anything performance related. It was just stand here and do exactly this. And, uh, but he always found these kind of beauties, these really striking images through his, through his actors. Long parade of uh, really interesting looking people um, that you project all your own feelings onto, you know? So it's, you have to participate, but his stories are so lean and perfect. This was a kind of a mid to early-ish film, I, I guess, you know? Um, he made films a little later, but he made films for a long time. Um, I think L'Argent, his last one, is maybe his most perfect, but this is a pretty perfect movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's Watching this now, one thing that, that occurs to me but that's, that's a, a, always a feature of his movies is there's very little direct sound, and the soundtrack, yeah. the sounds of those footsteps and of the train whistle, yeah. everything are so carefully composed and coordinated to the cuts. It's a rhythmic... Yeah, in the same way he wants you to be looking at just the hand on that, you know, the suitcase and the money sticking out of the thing. He wants you to only hear this. It's not, he never just has a general soundtrack of what it sounds like to be at a Paris 
uh, on a Paris train or something. Mm -hmm. It's always very specific. And he's, he's just, yeah, the, the, the detail. And he was doing these films on a very low budget. It's an interesting mm -hmm. cinema note that here was, Brasson was probably in his late 50s when he's doing this, I guess. And yeah. he was, run, he, the pickpocket crew would run into the breathless crew on the streets of Paris. Yeah. And he complained to Godard about, uh, he only had, he had such a low budget. Isn't it funny when you think of these masterpiece films, but I always jump back and go, there was some filmmaker complaining yeah. that he didn't have enough money and he only had extras, because a lot of the film is just him and a few actors, but he had these public scenes. But he only had a few days and he had like 75 extras for those few days. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely, and I've seen this film so much, you see, I, the same people. You see yeah. yeah, like the woman carrying those two, like that luggage, um, she's in other scenes. You know, you get to know them, and then you say, oh, well, she wouldn't be there and there, but he only had them for a few days. So it's pretty funny. But, yeah. uh, but what he was able to do was, was breathtaking, I just think. Yeah. Well, you, you, when you mentioned the, the fact that he often focuses on people's hands and their, yeah, their, their waists and you know yeah feet a lot of feet a lot of entering doors doors yeah. on handles doors opening and doors opening and closing he has these kind of recurring visual images in all his movies yeah. i remember going to see l'argent at the new york film festival in 1983 and <laughs> in the yeah. middle of the movie some guy in the audience just screamed he's like knees arms legs doesn't this man know how to show a face <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like at the top of his lungs, you know, in the middle of the movie. Does it, doesn't he know how? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he doesn't know how to no. show the face. Yeah, he forgot. He shows incredible faces yeah. in Larjean especially. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of... Yeah, when I, I remember watching Larjean, that was the first person film I saw, and it played over a weekend at Hog Auditorium at the UT campus. Like, it would show three or four times. And I remember having read a lot about Brisson, and he, um, theoretically, I, I liked what I had, you know... But it was no, tough to it, see his films. Yeah, yeah, yeah they weren't really hard. available. Yeah. Largent was only there because it had, it came out in 83 and 84, so I, was, I guess I was watching it in 84. And uh, yeah, I remember going Friday night and watching it and just like, kind of like, like, it sort of was forewarned, I guess I'd read a lot of, about his films, but I really kind of struggled with it the first time I saw it. Yeah. And then the next time, I just, by the end of the weekend, I, I had been converted. I, I totally felt I got it. And I also had read the, the Tolstoy story that, that Larjan is based on. The forged coupon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that helped a lot too. I was kind of seeing how he adapted that, what he was really trying to tell. Mm -hmm. He and leaves out the entire second half of the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the redemption part. Yeah. He just goes to the... <laughs> he ends it at the, the worst part yeah. of the movie. And that was his last uh, film. I know he, he lived quite a bit longer. And he was he was old, but he was uh, trying to make an, a few more films. Genesis. Remember? He had a film project from the creation Genesis. to the flood. Yeah, I actually got a letter from him. You know, the the film I showed in retrospect. I had shown ten of his films in Austin, and I wrote him a letter and sent him flyers and stuff, just out of the blue. And I, he wrote me a really nice letter back, um, just saying, "Oh wow, the the power of cinema." That you know, that. My films are showing <laughs> in Texas. Wow. There's an amazing um, extra on a, on a 
DVD of one of his movies, I can't remember which one, where he's on television saying to the, the guy says, Have you, you don't go to movies much, but I understand that you've seen a film recently that inspired you. And he says, yes, it's a film I took my niece to, I think. And I, I just, I was so awed by the power of cinema and the, 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 yeah. the absolute mastery of the filmmaker. And he said, uh -oh, so here comes the, film. the punchline. So he said, it's called For Your Eyes Only, uh, to James, <laughs> by no. John Glenn. Yeah, and I put him to see it many James more Glenn. times. And you're just like, okay. Um, yeah, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> Bergman apparently watched the Dallas TV show just religiously. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> Kubrick was a, a, well, anyway. Yeah. We can um, go on. You know, Anna Vizemsky apparently has a book out. Or she wrote a book. It hasn't been translated to English. Uh -huh. A friend of mine, Kabe Zahedi, wants to. Um, about Gajard? Or it, it was made her into life, a movie. Yeah, was she in was in um, two Brisson films, and then she became Godard's yeah. muse and wife. So it's like her life in films. That one breath, one breath on film. I don't think he ever repeated an actor. He, oh, oh, was our Balthazar. Yeah, um, I think she was the only one who ever showed up in two. Or there really? was Balthazar and uh, she Mouchette. There was. Oh no, it's yeah. a guy in Mouchette and Balthazar. Mm -hmm. There's a guy who's in both. But yeah, I think. Yeah, he was famous. The actors he just got. Yeah. See ya. So you, know, you did yeah. your thing, and you know that was like the old notion of cinema. They thought, long before the star system, they thought well, people will accept films as real, and they won't really. You can't show the same person again in another part because the audience won't believe it. That's right. You know that was an early worry of like studio head type people. So, um, let's show another a, a different kind of movie from around the same period, and this is a, a film I know is a favorite of yours. Let's look at the clip from Some Came Running. I don't know if that's just one moment in exactly, but it's a, I just love that movie so much. Um, actually, the moment there is Bama Dillard, Dean Martin's character, his hat is such a big element of the movie. Yeah. And he's introduced by his hat. You know, when he first he's walked in. Court, in the center yeah. of the frame. Yeah, there's, the the, he, there's a hat there first. <laughs> it's the last thing you see in the movie, too. And I just think Manelli was such the, the master of the cinemascope. He was just the right director at the right time. Vincent Manelli. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It's just such a beautiful movie. And you realize that's one take. You know, he's not cutting back and forth to close ups of those guys. He's not doing an insert of the drinking. He just lets it play out. This slow seduction. These guys end up roommates and best friends. But they're gamblers. You know, he's trying to take his money, basically. But this kind of recognition between. Uh, two guys, you know, of who they really are, which is kind of, you know, on one hand, low lives, <laughs> gamblers, but, you know, they have a lot of life to them. He ends up going back and uh, getting in the card game later, and then they end up roommates. And I don't know. How many of you seen Some Kim Running? Good. It's, 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 I don't know, one of my favorites. Worth looking, worth, worth searching Definitely out. Definitely worth seeing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and a young Shirley MacLaine, one of her great performances. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting at the um, Vincent Minnelli, I remember uh, at the opportunity to interview Richard Woodmark once, and he was talking about making The Cobweb with Vincent Minnelli, mm. which is another one of his scope yeah. melodramas in the 50s. Yeah. And he said, well, he's an interesting director. He paid more attention to the cigarette lighter and the yeah. color of the drapes and the way that they were hanging than he did to us. But he said, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and, Minnelli yeah. started here in New York. I think he was a costume designer. He's just a a beautiful like designer. He was a master of color and the palette and and the camera. You know, I think Wilder dismissed him as ah, Manelli's a decorator. But uh, 
I, I just think he's just so masterful. And, and the master of a lot of genres, too. He's known for his musicals, obviously, but I love his melodramas. And if by the end, for those of you who are going to go home and watch Some Came Running, you'll be thrilled But the way this movie ends. I always call this a, it's he amazing. Shot, he yeah. shot like a musical without the music. Yeah. You know, it has a great Elmer Bernstein soundtrack, but it, it is, um, you know, they're, they're at this big carnival and the wheel is going. And there's a famous story where he had to dig into the ground to get the right angle. The characters come up to get the carnival. And he was taking so much time that, and, and he finally got it and it wasn't quite right, and he had him, he says, okay, we gotta move the Ferris wheel now. <laughs> Frank Sinatra apparently left the set, got on a plane, and like, left. And <laughs> came back days later, he's like, he was driving him crazy. Yeah, right. But uh, that kind of- it, it was worth it, because the angle was, yeah, forget it. Yeah, I, yeah, I side with the director on that one for yep. sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's that kind of detail. He was known for that. And I asked Shirley, because I, I work with Shirley MacLaine, you know, she's in that. I got to know her a long time before I um, started geeking out, but um, I asked her about that. And she says, "Yeah, he he was definitely a little more concerned about the drapes mm -hmm. than the color of the drapes." And the, of course, Shirley doesn't have much good to say. You know, she's Sinatra because I thought she was kind of the mascot of the Rat Pack, and I love those I love those guys so much. And and she was like, "Oh yeah, Frank would." He took a lot of showers, you know, kind of a mama's boy. You know, she didn't, you know, <laughs> she was like, oh, I thought she was going to say something good about him. But no. um, she talked about they were shooting this on location in Indiana, quite a bit of it. And, uh, yeah, they had a house with guards, but, like, women from the town would be kind of flocking around. Yeah. And Dean and Frank would just be inside playing cards and stuff. But a bit of a circus. Yeah. Um, anyway, check out that movie. It's really good. I'm always kind of proselytizing for some came running. So. But it's interesting because it's a, the contrast, you know, between that and Pickpocket made roughly the same moment. Yeah. Know, um, yeah, 58. You're, you're looking at and high Hollywood and... Um, yeah, beautiful cinemascope, the yeah. Band-Aid screen of, of Hollywood um, in this kind of French New Wave type movie. Um, but, uh, you know, hey, they're both great. And, and even to let that... The way, Rassan would never let a scene play out like that. Yeah, you know, the length of it. But, because, uh, I mean, he wasn't interested in those. You know. Especially between two actors who are, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's not in his cinematic language. Although it's interesting, but, I think it, it, he took a long time trying to make Lancelot of the Lake, and at one point right. was, was trying to get Burt Lancaster and Yvonne DiCarlo. Really? Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad that didn't work out. I, but, yeah, I never yeah. heard that. Yeah. But the good thing about cinema is. Natalie Wood, Natalie Wood. Yeah, wow. Berlin, yeah. The wide angle you can actually get. I've only shot you know scope a couple times, but you can kind of get two close-ups at once. You know, it's not like you can't get if you have look how far apart they're sitting and yet they're in the same frame. Hard mm. to do in certain aspect ratios. They won't fit in the same shot. So, but CinemaScope allowed that, and and I think that's it's a beautiful era. Um, you know, you have to pour a lot of light into the. Especially back then, yeah. with the with the film stocks, but uh, yeah. it's beautiful. I think Preminger and and Minnelli to me are two of the masters, and Nicholas Ray too. You know, of, of the CinemaScope screen. You know, it's it's an art. Well, you know, it's still around, but I don't know. It's something special about the way they shot them back then. So. Uh, let's look at another uh, CinemaScope movie, uh, The Long Goodbye. 
there's one specific thing in that. Yeah, world. just again, I, I'm in love with like flaws that I think what Altman's going there is for such a naturalism uh, that clearly it's a mistake in mid-take or toward the end of that take, you know, Elliot Gould, somehow that cigarette does fall off his leg and the way actors do in a play, they, you have to incorporate what might happen if someone gets their foot caught on a thing or forgets a line, it's all kind of live and you do it, but film can be pretty specific. If you make a mistake, you know, cut, let's do it again. But it's in the movie. <laughs> I was like, oh, he made a choice to go with that flaw just because it kind of felt real. If you're, you know, the way Sterling Hayden comes in the room, is like, ah, yeah, drop your, and you see them both kind of lean down. It's kind of an awkward moment, but it's kind of what might happen in life. Like, oh, I dropped my cigarette, so, uh, oh, he's going to, you know, so, is that a polite thing or is it an actor in the moment? But uh, I just, I love that movie so much. And that's another good, you know, those 70s Altman films in CinemaScope are always beautiful. The camera is always in motion. Always moving. And he was the master of, the, like, Kubrick was the master of the reverse zoom. And Altman was the master of the zoom in, you know. You put them together, I don't know what you get. But, um, yeah, just, just beautiful stuff. And I, I love... Uh, this film, and I love Sterling Hayden so much. I think it's one of his great performances, and Elliot Gould, obviously. So, such a great, uh, just rejigger the, uh, you know, Altman had, he, he tackled so many genres doing an Altman version of it. If you haven't seen this or his other films, has there, who, who's seen Long Goodbye? Yeah, everybody. There we go. Not, that's not everybody, but um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's it, that talk about moments, Long Goodbye is just one just incredible moment after the other. And again, glommed onto a plot that someone's taken some money, <laughs> he's left, Terry, whatever's the last name. Terry Lennox. Yeah. The Jim Bouton character. Played by Jim Bouton. Yep. Um, so yeah, he had a great way with casting. Henry Gibson is in it, so I don't know. And that was one of the great decades. You know, Altman in the 70s. Ashby in the 70s, I think Truffaut. The 70s were a good decade for a lot of, a lot of great filmmakers. Uh, but yeah, I think of Truffaut and you know, Bob Fosse. Yeah, mm. yeah, just such a great era. But the way that film looks. Francis you know, Ford Coppola made some good movies, I think. Sure did. Mm -hmm. But you know, four great, you know. Mm -hmm. But Altman made like a lot of them. Altman had a deal at Fox that I don't think any person in his studio, well, I guess Woody Allen has a similar situation or has had. But Altman had a great deal with, um, uh, Al I guess Alan Ladd Jr. was the running yeah. 20th Century Fox in mm -hmm. this era. And they trusted Altman. He had not really had many hits except MASH, mm -hmm. I believe. That was his big hit in 1970. And he could go into the studio and say, you know, I had this dream the other night that there were these women in a desert, and there was a car, and there was two people, and I kind of <laughs> want to make this movie. He's like, yeah, go do it. Yeah. Here's a million bucks, go, go make that movie. And you, you get three women, you know, it's yeah. like some... So he kind of was on this roll where he was getting everything. Uh, He's just getting these films made, these riffs on genre, based on books, based on his dreams, you know, whatever. So it just all meant he just had a great, great run. But like all great runs, they, uh, they tend to... The industry changes, things change, and, you know. Well, the great run came to an end for a lot of people. And yeah. He... Um, he adapted by making smaller films based on plays for a while. Which I found really encouraging. You know, like he, I guess he had a bomb with Popeye and the industry had changed a lot. You know, post Heaven's Gate, you know, that's the, so the story goes. Hollywood's becoming more corporate and for a long time he was doing these very low budget, you know, 
and they're all wonderful. Streamers, Come Back to the Five and Dime, um, Secret Honor, these kind of one room, or, you know, they've been usually plays, some plays that he had originated. Fool for Love, right? Yeah. Yep. So he was just doing, I saw him speak once. He was in Austin showing a beautiful print of Nashville. And uh, he was saying, hey, no one's got a better deal than me. Here he was, an old man said, I got to make a film about every year of my life. And he was just really kind of, because he's kind of a, uh, you know, I guess ornery type of guy. I'm, I actually, I just, I actually met him once, my first time at Sundance. Okay, it's 91, I'm there with my first film, and there's Robert Altman. He's there with um, his, his TV show of that moment. Um, oh, come on, Michael Moriarty, what was the... Uh, the gun? Tanner. Tanner, Tanner 88, whatever. Tanner 88. You know, yeah, that was like one of the great... I mean, before the Larry Sanders show, there was Tanner, Tanner 88 and Tanner. He was there with Gary Trudeau and they were talking about it, some panel. But anyway, he was at, coming out of something and I was there and he was kind of lingering. So I, I made my move and said, oh, Mr. Altman, you know, I geeked out. Oh, you know, and I even told him this scene I just showed you. You know that scene in The Long Goodbye when Elliot Gould, I said, that kind of changed my life. He looked at me and kind of went, I can't be responsible for that. <laughs> and I went, I went, no, no, it's a good thing. I, I got a film here and I'm, you know, but, yeah. you know, that was it. <laughs> Do you have any? Is there he any, signed my DGA card though. Years later. Oh, there. Yeah. Do you have any examples of that in your own work where you incorporated mistakes? I mean, I'm sure things uh, that probably happened. a lot of them. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know about specifically. I, I, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. I'm sure. You know, sometimes you just go with the reality of it. But yeah. So. Um. I think we, we're, we're probably going to have to. Yeah, but 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 there are, what's we should end with you know the movie the end of the the movie the right. the, the movie yeah. that has yeah, the yeah, end yeah, of the movie it. yeah what's the clip let's so show, let's look at let's show the end of the last movie we're showing here yeah there yeah. we go uh, another scope film let's look at two lane blacktop um, should we make a joke and blame the projectionist yeah what yeah. happened yeah what happened up there <laughs> it was 1971 didn't that happen a few times like at the well, I think I told you that the studio print of the <laughs> right the, the the studio print of the movie, the projectionist was so pissed off by the last shot of the movie that he cut it out. He just cut. So the, I hope he just cut the last little bit. Or no, he cut the, the whole last he, scene. He cut what? the last shot. Yeah, well, the yeah. last. That's horrible enough. But yeah. yeah. So, so how does the film end? He's just he's ahead <laughs> in the race. If you look closely, there's not a car. So yeah. Well, he but won. Still, this is the point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember Tulane Blacktop was also kind of a rumor of a movie for a long time. Um, it was a cult film. You could read about it, but you really couldn't see it. I'm talking in the 80s, or when I was first you know, becoming a film freak. I, I really wanted to see it, and I was once at my sister's house, God, in Houston, and I was just arrived late. It's two in the morning, I turn on a TV, and uh, you know, a movie showing, and I just see the opening credits, Tulane Blacktop. Yeah. Holy shit. You know, so needless to say, at four in the morning, I'm still watching, you know, this little TV screen. But uh, I remember I was editing my first, um, it was a Super 8 feature I was making, and I was, you know, I guess just thinking about, like, okay, well, I had, like, one strong idea, and I remember just seeing seeing this movie, and it doesn't, James Taylor looked like he just wandered out of a Brisson movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with that kind of stoic face and yeah. that, 
you just kind of project onto it. He's so, you know, the young James Taylor there. And I love Dennis Wilson in that movie so much. Amazing. Well, and the great Warren Oates. Warren Oates just gives one of the great performances. One of the great Warren American Oates cinema. performances. And, and Laurie uh, Bird. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's just such yeah. a fucking great movie. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of like going all the way. I mean, when that movie ended, it was just like, fuck yeah. Yeah. You know, just go t- have an idea and just have the courage to go all the way with it. Yeah. Have the courage of your convictions, whatever that idea was. And to just end that movie that way is like, yeah. Let's just let's just take it the cinema apparatus itself all the way to the end, and I think indirectly, you know, in my own world, the end of Slacker is my own version of that. Yeah, you know, they're right. super eight cameras and they throw them off a cliff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I see this footage, and it's kind of like take on the the medium itself. This very different. You're in his head, and it's this road movie, this a cross country race that is completely broken down. And you're just in his head. The, the last sequence is so brilliant, the way the sound goes away. And the, yeah. You know, it's just so you know, beautifully impressionistic or something. So. And he had made, the director, Monty Hellman, had made the shooting yeah. uh, a few years previously, which ends on a similar note. It's kind of, with, mm-hmm. you're not quite sure what's happening. Warren Oates' twin appears. Yeah. And it's, he kind of got that idea from the Zapruder film, with the Kennedy oh, wow. assassination. And then, you know, yeah. with here, with this, he. This was a studio movie. You know? Right, this was that, you know, post-Easy Rider, let's let the youth yeah. make some movies. And yeah. Yeah, we got James Taylor, he's got a pop-up. You know, he's a new, you know, hot singer. We got Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys. Yeah. We got Warren Oates. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and yeah. And then they made this. And then they made this and went, hmm. Yeah. Maybe they don't all make a lot of money, but it was a great era, Last Picture Show, and, you know, they, they were giving these guys a chance. And, you know, Monty is, I consider him like the, I don't know, the mysterious master of American cinema. His films are never, if you say, what's that film about? And you'll hear it, just rest assured, it's not about that. (laughs) It's never about that. It's about something else entirely. Mm. And that's the beautiful thing to pull off. And you know, bless him, he's he's trying to get a movie made right now. And he's made very few movies, but every single one of them counts. Yeah, every one, he he does, you know, kind of go all the way with those ideas. And this one really has a, I think he, the the script for this film was published in Esquire in its entirety. Yeah, it's very very movie. wordy. Uh, he yeah. shot the whole thing. He shot it all in sequence and gave the actors pages as they went along. And the first cut of the movie was four hours long. Right. And then he just took out took all out. the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> right. kind of it's pared it down. Yeah. You know, in the future, you learn to do that on the page and not after you shoot the whole movie. But yeah. a lot of filmmakers work that way. It's like, oh, let's just cut out. Yeah. Here it all is, and all we need is this. It takes a lot of guts to just get to that. But um, he did, and you know, he's just one of those renegade guys who went all the way with it, so. Yeah, a real hero of... Uh, yeah, you know, you gotta... And uh, you know, with Harry Dean passing, I can't help but think of you know, Cockfighter and, you know, some of the films he's in. Well, he's in Two Lane Blacktop. He's, in he's one Black of the guys Top. that Warren Oates picks up on the road. Yeah, yeah. Puts yeah, his hand on his knee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm glad Two Lane's having a long, it was already a cult film in the 80s, but, you know, there's a, there's a really nice versions of it now. There's special documentaries about it. it. It's cult status. It's very solid, and I think it's more widely seen. It's not, it's far from a, a lost or forgotten film. Mm. So, good for, the, thankfully. So the, the other day, just to wrap up, somebody um, 
I think during the press conference, you were asked about what movies you watched to inspire you to make Last Flag Flying, and you said, you know, well, I, I wasn't really thinking of other movies. It was just, so it's interesting. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about movies, but they're movies that you carry with you that you yeah. see when you're younger. You don't know, and then they're yeah, there. Was, that you're, yeah, like I think starting out, I was always, oh, you're making a movie, you want to watch some films, or maybe with your production designer or director of photography or editor, you might sit down and watch a movie or, I think there was a generation of people who, before they made their movie, they'd all watch like The Conformist. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody watched The Conformist over and over. Yeah. And uh, I just, just haven't done that in years where like, oh, here's a film that we're, I don't know. I don't yeah. really think that way. It doesn't, um, you know, you're just trying to make, I think maybe with time, you know, you have your own yeah. body of work and your own cinema universe going parallel to this all the films you love and and still finding new films that fit that category also. So um, I think those work kind of on more parallel tracks probably. Mm. So, well speaking of Last Five Playing, I want to give a shout out to uh, my executive producer who's here. Tom Wright, are you here? I thought I saw you. Yeah, there's Tom. I just want to give a public shout out because I forgot to mention him the other night. And in an intro, he didn't come up on stage, but without him, the film, he published the book Last Flag Flying and has been with us all these years, and I just love him to death. So thank you, Tom. You're the man. And thanks for coming today. You wanna, aren't you sick of me? You came here for them? So, okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, um, well, we didn't get to talk about everything, but almost. Yeah. You guys have had enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> not enough of me. So. Yeah, this, so that, anyway. that concludes the first hour of the program. Yeah, yeah. now we're going to go. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to get into the hard stuff. Um, thanks a lot, man. Anyway, thanks for, thank you guys so much for being here. Have a great rest of your festival. See a lot of great movies. You want to announce the show The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>